0: Hey everyone. This is Swix. I'm Head of Developer Experience at Temporal IO, and we're going to talk a bit about learning in public and Temporal IO and why you need a workflow engine. So, welcome to the MongoDB podcast.
1: Welcome to the show. My name is Michael Lin, and I'm a developer advocate at MongoDB. I spend most of my time creating content for developers in the hope that they'll improve at their jobs, they'll become more efficient and hopefully find joy in the process of creating. My guest today is Swix. He's got a similar mission. He's written an awesome book. It's called Learning in Public, The Coding Career Handbook. It's just chock full of great information. Uh, It's a guide, it's principles, it's strategies, it's tactics. Definitely check this book out, regardless of where you're at in your coding career. I'm going to include a coupon code. If you want to purchase the book, you'll get a discount. We also talk about Temporal, the workflow engine for microservices. Phenomenal project. SWIX is the head of developer experience there. So you'll learn a little bit about Temporal and why you might need it. Thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. Stay tuned. Today's episode is brought to you by MongoDB University. Build your MongoDB skills and advance your career with courses and certification. Learn to build better, faster applications for free. University.mongodb.com. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to sit down and kind of dive into some of the things that you've created and your journey. First off, can I ask you to introduce yourself to the audience and and tell folks who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Hey, everyone. I am Swix, uh, also known as Sean Wang, and I'm head of developer
0: experience at Temporal.io. In a previous life, I was a finance person when I switched careers to tech at age 30, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that. And since then, I've had a winding road through tech, uh, working at Two Sigma. Uh, Netlify, AWS, and now at Temporal. And also stretching from front-end to back-end, so we can talk a, a lot about the, the career journey for developers as well.
1: I, I want to dive into the career journey because it's it's interesting to me. You know, Everybody's got their unique journey, but I think yours is very interesting. Maybe talk about how you got into tech because I know you had a, a different career before. Yeah, exactly. So I got into tech essentially by
0: slow immersion. You know, I had a basic course when I was 12 and I started writing VBA when I was uh, serving in the Singapore Army. And then when I was in business school, like learning Excel, learning R, learning MATLAB, you know, all that kind of academic programming, but never really considering myself a programmer. I think it's a measure of how much software is eating the world because the entire time I was coding, I never considered myself a programmer but of course you would use these tools to to do what you did and when i joined finance i did a few years in currency derivatives trading and then i moved over to hedge fund equities trading uh, i also did option pricing in haskell i did uh portfolio risk management in python and <laughs> the entire time i was just building tools for myself you know to be clear this was like two week or two month projects out of the entire time that I worked. So I, it was a side project rather than the main thing. But it was really fascinating that like you pick up these things just because you don't have a choice, at, at least in finance, like every up and coming young person definitely is tasked to learn all these skills. And then for me, the real insight moment was we covered tech stocks when I was in at the hedge fund that I worked at. And I realized that all these companies were IPOing with like the majority of the growth kind of behind them. Obviously, some companies still continue to grow, uh, like MongoDB, (laughs) and I wanted to get more in that phase. I I felt like as an investor, I wasn't really creating value. I was just kind of shifting value around, and I wanted to build rather than uh, invest. So I changed careers, and I took a year to learn free code camp and and go through a paid code camp before uh, ending up at Two Sigma.
1: Talk about that motivation. You wanted to build rather than shift. Talk about your motivation for for wanting to build something. Um, I think it's just a fundamental drive. It, it's something that maybe is
0: instilled in me by my parents. There's uh, funny enough, like I'm not a religious person at all, but something that my my mom, a uh, religion, my mom is in. She's into this Japanese form of Buddhism where a really core way of expressing yourself is to create value, like uh, for, for those who speak Chinese. And <laughs> uh, maybe that's the first time Chinese has ever spoken on this podcast. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I mean, I love bringing in like, you know, different cultures, you know, I think that, uh, sure. that enriches the listening experience. Anyway. So, yeah, I mean, just the, the, Fundamental desire to like want to make things and and have and be be able to say like I was responsible for that. Of course, you can make a lot of money investing, but you will never be able to say that you made the thing. The other thing I will highlight for people who like have thought about just career capital and the long term effects of their work, uh, investing is a very uh, it's like a black hole of ideas. Like you have a trade idea, it does well, great. It does poorly, not so great, and you have to make up for it later on, but it's always about the next thing. You're only as good as your last trade. Whereas with building, with uh, creating, developing, whatever you call it, the thing that you worked on yesterday could probably help you tomorrow.
1: And it's a very long-term compounding effort, which I really like. And it's, it's about experience and the sharing experience with others is the same, I think, as, as building something. And you've managed to do that. Talk a little bit about the book you've written and the work you do to help others learn. Yeah. So I did not set out to write a book. I don't consider myself
0: a very good writer or anything. Uh, I do write well, I think. And essentially, it all came out of me going back to my boot camp and wanting to write down some some advice for like, you know, a little graduation commencement type thing. And I was like, what what is the fundamental difference? It was the most, what's the 80-20 on like the most effective things I've done for my career versus the not so effective things. And I realized that everything that was effective came out of this fundamental core of learning in public, that when I learned something, I put it out there. And even though not that many people read it, I actually internalized it better because I tried to express it in my own words. Uh, and also people have this phenomenon very well documented by XKCD that if you get something wrong in public, they'll crawl over broken glass to come correct to you. <laughs> and <laughs> you have to not mind it. You have to not put your identity into your work and you have to keep a small ego. I always say that you can learn so much on the internet for the low low price of your ego and the key psychological unlock for that is really that you have to separate yourself from your work you have to say that this version of you this this work that you just put out is the best version of you today but a year from now you should be embarrassed by it because you've learned so much uh, and, and that's a really positive growth mentality to take to, to your development. And that's what I wrote down in my, in my essay on learning in public that went viral. And then I wrote a few more things. And that started off accidentally, you know, starting my career as a blogger. Uh, my site gets a couple million views a year now. And then, you know, during the pandemic, I was like, okay, I'm between jobs. I just left Netlify and I was about to go into AWS, I was like, okay, a lot of people don't really sit, take the time to sit down and write advice for the junior to senior stage. Like I had just reached senior at Netlify. I was at, I was a senior uh, at Amazon. And uh, you know, a lot of people don't really target that advice, that that, that stage. Like they, they target the uh, get the first job stage. They target the crack the coding interview stage. And then it's all books, books about architecture and engineering management. Where is that that <laughs> level up stage? Like there's a lot of people graduating from boot camps and colleges going into that junior engineer role. And then there's a lot of companies wanting to hire senior engineers. Who's training the juniors to seniors? So (laughs) I wanted to write a book for that audience. I've perceived a a gap in the market there. So yeah, it took two months. I wrote down, I listed out 50 things I wanted to write and managed to complete 40 of them. And and so far, it's been a really great uh, community. So that's the other thing about the online native format. You don't have to be constrained to just shipping a PDF. Uh, I ship a PDF and 1500 links in my bibliography where people can follow up. That resource alone is something that people pay for. And then I add an online community where I talk with my readers every day about stuff that they read about and apply in their jobs. And it's so much more rewarding than just did, you know, leaves on a a, a
1: book. Um, And I I really enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, congratulations on the success of of the work. I think it's really important. And so you mentioned your ego and not being afraid to make mistakes. Do you still make mistakes today? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Where do I start? (laughs) I mean, there's
0: a huge range of mistakes. The more senior you go, it is much more about people mistakes than technical mistakes because you know that you'll eventually overcome technical mistakes, but there's some people mistakes that are irreversible, and that is something that I'm appreciating more over time, and I'm still still learning how to deal with. Um, yeah, but technical mistakes I love sharing them because uh, it's it's very uh, it's very like there's no there's no human emotion like it's just like haha, I got it wrong, but also I think it's very. Uh, comforting to, to for people to see like people that they might look up to and see that they struggle with the same things as well. Uh, like just the other day, Julia Evans posted on her blog, just her struggling with the import statement in JavaScript. And to me, like I, I completely understand both how to use it, but also why she struggles with it. And I think it's a, mm. it's, it's a pretty damning statement on the state of JavaScript, but also I think it's very uh, rewarding or comforting to, to other people who feel like her. And I think more people voicing out their mistakes and struggles with technology just humanizes it a little bit more.
1: Yeah, and it, I think it's, it's opening up, it, it, once you're able to admit that you don't get it, you're automatically welcomed into this community of people who have been in the same place. And for me, it's about that connection, you know, the connection and community.
0: The stakes are a little high sometimes. When
1: you represent a company,
0: Uh, When you manage people, when you are, when you're privy to non-public information, you have to be sensitive about, you know, being wrong in public and, and thinking before you speak and all that. So uh, I do try to teach that as part of my overall package of learning in public now, because uh, some people just take it
1: as free license to just blurt out anything that they think about. And that's not true. (laughs) Are, Are you comfortable sharing any other tips or advice for, for folks in that same space? There's a concept
0: which I think about often, which is this transition from incremental explorer to a builder, uh, and these are these are concepts I call learning gears. So let me just let me just describe this to you, and it's a very common pattern. Like, like people hear about creating, and they hear about building a network and uh, starting to blog and stuff, and they they think it's great, and they they start off doing that. Um, a lot of them don't follow through or a lot of them don't see the effort or the the benefit from compounding because they're all one-offs. They're all like incremental, like, Oh, I felt like blogging about Vim today. Uh, I I get a lot of people blogging about like bash commands and terminals and stuff like that. And it's great for them, for, for their, their own intellectual curiosity, but no one really thinks of them as the person for that technology. Something that you have to do is to keep coming back to the well, to keep being that, gathering point, uh, and some, this is something that's a bit of a ner- nerdy, te- nerdy term, uh, it's a shelling point, uh, which is, a shelling point is where people go to uncoordinated to discuss something. So the shelling point for New York City, if I just drop you anywhere in New York City and ask you to meet up with any other random person who's also given that information, you go to two places. You go to the Empire State Building or you go to Grand Central Terminal. Like those are the unspoken gathering points. And you want to be the unspoken gathering point for whatever topic that you decide to focus on. And focusing is hard. Yes, you have many interests and you're a complex being. You contain multitudes, but just pick one and, and kind of stick to it and build community, build a reusable resource. One of the things that I chose to do, I built the React and TypeScript cheat sheet for two years because I was learning React and TypeScript. Cheat, TypeScript. And so instead of putting up blog posts after blog posts and trying to get attention for it, I built one thing and just made that thing really, really good. And so that thing has now like 20,000 20, something stars. I teach people from like Microsoft, like Uber, Google, TypeScript, and they teach me every single time they ask a question. So, and I think that's a really fundamental thing. So I, I call this overall methodology open source knowledge that you have a core code base that you open source, but you keep working on it instead of having one-offs that you then want to walk away from. You want to have that compounding effect because that's all the benefit.
1: Yeah, I love that term, open source knowledge. And it kind of begs participation from others in the community, right?
0: It does. And I think if you show that you're a good steward of uh, that, people feel welcome to contribute. You can, if it's big enough, you can offer them roles. You handle the website, you handle the Discord, whatever. Um, and it's it gets, gets to be a lot of fun. But that starts to become more of a job in terms of mm. building community. I mean, sometimes you just want it to learn by yourself. And that's totally fine as well. So I don't want, not everything should be a huge effort, but I think. You should take the combination of your interests and the people's response to your interests as some kind of equation into how much work you should be putting into something like this. Yeah.
1: I have a talk on this called Open Source Knowledge on my YouTube if anyone wants to check it out. Yeah. We'll include a link in the show notes. Make sure you check those. Do you believe that that anyone can learn? Anyone can become proficient in software development? I think anyone can. Yes. I do do strongly
0: believe that. I don't think that everyone will naturally enjoy it. And we do need people who do other things than develop software in the world. So (laughs) I think everyone should at least try it out, you know, to try it on for size and understand that the fundamentals of what is basically going to be ruling a lot of their digital lives, that's super important, that technical literacy is very important. And I have a whole spiel about that because the people who make technology don't necessarily represent the, the users of that technology, and they make decisions that impact their lives. Anyway, side note, uh, I think everyone can learn and can try it out. Whether or not they should do it for a living, yeah, that's up to them. That's up to their interests, up to their own natural aptitude. Uh, I've seen people who really struggle and be completely miserable learning programming,
1: and you know maybe they'd much rather be better off doing something else. I guess it comes down to enjoyment. I mean, if you can Struggle through the hard parts and and find a place of joy. That's where the goodness happens.
0: I, I will say, the way we teach really matters. Okay, so I was and in it, I was an early interest in. I had an early interest in programming. I had friends who were programmers, but they were just way more uh, advanced than me. And when I saw them typing away on their Bash commands and like they had they had all this intimate knowledge of like networking and stuff like that at age like thirteen and fourteen. I just looked at them and I looked at myself and I said, I'm not like them. Therefore I ruled myself out of programming for the next 20 years. So if we had more types of ways to show that these, these are ways that you can make software and you, it doesn't have to be the hardcore terminal hacker guy, then you allow more diversity and you allow more people to see themselves as programmers rather than that stereotype, stereotypical image that is maybe a little bit exclusionary.
1: Mm, love that. So. You're now at a company called Temporal. Do you want to take a few moments yes. and talk about the value prop of, of Temporal? Sure. I'll give it a shot. So Temporal is a
0: workflow engine for microservice orchestration. Um, big term. And th- where you come to this really depends on where you come from. <coughs> um, I will talk about a bit about my journey to this, and I'll talk a bit about the company's journey. Uh, my journey to this, like, what is a front-end developer doing at a back microservice orchestration company. What is a front-end developer doing at KubeCon and <laughs> doing all this like sort of back stuff? Essentially, when I was working at Netlify and AWS, I was a developer advocate for serverless. And when you talk about serverless, it's great. It scales infinitely, blah, blah, blah. Not something that's impolite conversation that we don't really do very well is long-running work. <laughs> and the default timeout for... Lambda for AWS Lambda is like 15 seconds or something like that. You know, you can extend it to 15 minutes or whatever, but uh, nobody wants a REST request to take 15 minutes to resolve. And also, what if your job takes 16 minutes? Do you, you now have to take it uh, right in arbitrary cutover point? Like These are all just things that when you go to the promised nano serverless, people don't really tell you about or the architecture is kind of funky. Uh, there are all sorts of ways to wrangle this. But ultimately, like I decided that this is a... Painful enough thing that I started to blog about it, and I blogged. I, I basically, the way I approached this is I took the experience of the monolith, like what are the jobs to be done with a monolith, and broke it down. And I have the list of like you know job processing, but also storage and and compute and uh, hot storage and cold storage and all, all that stuff, and mapped each of those components to existing primitives. And I realized that the long running job piece was the hardest or, or sort of an unanswered question and I just kind of left that blog post up there because I didn't really, f- again, I felt that imposter syndrome. I ha- I didn't know the existing solutions. I don't have a lot of experience with like Sidekick and RabbitMQ and all the all the other sort of uh, technologies that people use to tackle this problem. But people found me through that blog post. So the VC that invested in Temporal uh, found me uh, and the, you know, my head of product through this blog post and that's so far the highest return on investment blog post I've ever written. I guess I that job. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and by the way, another another benefit of learning in public. Like I definitely got uh, my last three jobs through uh, just having a network online and uh, blogging about the stuff, the technologies that I was already interested in. And surprise, surprise, people are more likely to hire you if you've already shown that you're you understand them and you you know how to advocate for them. Obviously, this is easier if you're applying for a dev advocate position, but I think it's generally applicable. Okay, so uh, let's talk about like why like long running processes. Like I think a lot of times people think about that and they think about okay, video transcoding. You know, like like if I, like if like I'm like, a four hour job, like if I'm on a podcast and I need to transcode quality or whatever it is. Like uh, the domain of long running jobs is actually much shorter and much longer than that time period that you're thinking about. You're probably thinking about like thirty minutes or like a four hour long job. Um, It can be as short as a file transfer. So like the way that Box uses uh, Temporal is that they use it for file transfers, which can scale indefinitely from like transferring a single file to transferring a million files. And you need all of that to transactionally happen because that's what a a transfer should do. That's basically capturing like the low end and then the, the high end it basically can go for days and months and years and basically indefinitely. Like why should a workflow ever end? And that's where you start to get into entity or actor modeling situations. So one example is one of the use cases that we have is Checker, where they have background. They basically run background checks for the gig economy as, a, as an API. And some of that involves human-in-the-loop processes, like going to the courthouse to check for criminal backgrounds and stuff like that. A bunch of things need to be true in order for the next condition to Uh, proceed so essentially like that is the core value proposition of the company and it can take multiple days and you can track each of these things in a single workflow and i think that's a very fundamental benefit that it would be hard to coordinate separately so i'll I'll talk a little bit about like the origins of this our founders worked at aws working on simple workflow and sqs and uh, stuff like that as well as azure at, at microsoft working on azure durable functions and they really let they really hit the nail on the head when they worked on this workflow system at uber and if you think about an uber ride from beginning to end from like searching for a place to pick up to drop off to rating to tipping and email emailing the confirmation and all that and then you think about all the things that can go wrong in the time in the intermediate time between like changing of the destination to the driver getting lost to like whatever cancellation at any time in the process that's a very that's a lot of systems to orchestrate together and to make sense of to make sense of to version and and test and all that what essentially temporal was when it was developed at uber was essentially an overall framework for or- organizing all this code and organizing all these systems and it was open sourced and adopted at a bunch of other places like Airbnb stripe Netflix we, we have a bunch of an embarrassingly long list of adopters hashicorp also eventually you know I think the demand for a hosted version of this was so strong that they left uber to start temporal two years ago and so now we're we're an independent uh, company as a startup um, running um, very large workloads <laughs> for uh, the the core jobs of a lot of companies that uh, you may have heard of that are household names.
1: You've obviously got some customers with massive scale. What's the, the, the kind of lower end use case, the sweet spot for the use case at the lower end?
0: Yeah, I think basically the way that we think about, the way that the, our official messaging is that you should use the workflow engine whenever you need to do anything longer than a request response cycle. So we have design partners that are startups, uh, for example, we have one that is going into Y Combinator. I'm not going to name them, but essentially like it spans the entire range from small to large. Um, I think you do need to have that technical expertise to understand uh, the uh, deployment model that we have, where you deploy the workers as a security feature rather than us uh, deploying workers so that you run your own code and we never see it. And that's an important, like, like you know, PII and uh, financial and health security feature. But you know, beyond that baseline DevOps expertise, our whole proposition is that we do the dis- distributed systems for you, so that you uh, use our SDKs and uh, everything sort of works um, automatically out of uh, out of that environment that we provide for you.
1: Yeah, and how does a developer begin to? leverage Temporal as a part of their project? Is it a hosting model? Do I incorporate code? Do Is it microservices? What does it look like to the developer? Oh, this is a great question. So it is usually
0: microservices, but you can also incorporate it into your serverless functions as well. Bas- we basically don't have an opinion on the size of service. We just... Glom onto microservice because that 's where people have the most pain, but uh, we don 't really care about the size of service it 's more about every time you move between systems you need all these standard reliability infrastructure you need retries, you need timeouts, you need heart beating, uh, you need uh, visibility across all the state changes and it turns out that having every single team in your company build that individually is not as efficient as centralizing that work into a central workflow orchestration and uh, yeah, so whenever whenever you're building stuff like that, I think that's something that you should be reaching for a workflow engine, uh, not necessarily Temporal, but uh, you should consider Temporal <laughs> when mm. you do it. Uh, and I can talk a bit about the opi- the strong opinions that we have versus others. Uh, but the main thing I wanted to maybe uh, touch on, which is perhaps relevant to the MongoDB use case, or it, it, which is that we're like a value add layer on top of databases, right? Like um, among- databases typically should be uh taking care of the the persistence layer uh but we take we and we and we have pluggable persistence layers as well uh but we bundle that together with the state machine uh that is at, uh, that is uh specialized for this workflow engine we bundle that together with the scheduler we bundle that together with the queuing system um and that is stuff that you never had to touch again as a developer and i think that's a very fundamental uh win because you you now separate that out and you that that is no longer business logic that you have to consider about, and then you just you know everyone wants you to just write business logic, but we are definitely focusing on our part of that bargain. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll talk I'll talk a little bit about like yeah basically like I think I think it's it's easy it's easy to start going with uh, just like a local. Docker environment. I personally like running it in the browser with Gitpod um, or GitHub Codespaces when that goes generally available. And then you can deploy in whatever you like uh, Kubernetes or your own bare, bare
1: machines. It doesn't really matter because it's a, it's a pretty simple binary. And are there language requirements? I mean, is it, is Temporal supporting all of the popular languages and frameworks?
0: Yeah, it supports Go, Java. PHP and typescript uh, typescript I'm actually launching next week uh, so that, that should be pretty exciting and it, it's not language it's it's funny because like it's language agnostic uh, at, at its core because it uses grPC to talk to the server uh, and that's really fun for polyglot microservices whenever you have different teams using different languages we don't really care we just you know care about the inputs and the outputs of each service um, but uh, we we have a strong opinion that you should use uh, idiomatic SDK SDKs, idiomatic language SDKs to write your workflow code, uh, because then you can use all the standard software engineering practices like testing and libraries um, that you're used to, um, to to write all this, you know, ultimately very important logic. So yeah, uh, we do do have language support. We have a lot of requests for, you know, Python and C Sharp, and hopefully we'll be working on that next year. But uh, it is language specific, just with the client and then the server you can run on whatever languages you want.
1: Mm. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the same value prop for MongoDB. Uh, at the driver space, it's you know it's idiomatic. You interact with the database in the same way, same similar API across uh, across languages, and and the value prop in terms of alleviating concern for some of the more administrative uh, functions, uh, like Realm, for example, um, alleviates the need for the developer to focus on how to sync data. I guess the value proposition around efficiency and allowing the developer to focus on the really important stuff, which is is creating really interesting business logic, right? Yeah, it's a
0: complicated topic. So like I worked on a a Realm-like thing at AWS with AppSync and our, our AppSync data store. And it's an interesting proposition because these things tend to be generally pretty heavy and that's like the one thing that web developers hate, right? Like they, <laughs> every time they see they look at your package and bundle phobia, and they see like it's a one megabyte dependency, they're like, I, I mean, uh, do I really need all this? And of course, like. For some apps, it's a it's a easy trade. For some other apps, it's not, and you ha- you do have to make that decision. Which is why, for example, mobile apps tend to not have this issue because we don't really care about the size of mobile apps. I, I would say I would say yeah. I think this is a actually very interesting evolution for anyone is who's interested in developer tools. In the sense that we used to be all about the API economy. If you had a great REST API, then you would you're part of the this booming API economy. But I think a lot of dev tools are now going to the next layer. And realizing that if you expose an API that's like you know documented by Swagger or I think it's called Open API or something, it's not enough because every user eventually ends up writing their own client to interface with the API anyway. And you might as well provide that client for them. So that's a that's a argument for SDKs over APIs. And once you have these SDKs, which are typically thin wrappers over APIs. What if what if we made them fat clients over instead of thin clients? So fat clients meaning that they store state, uh, they handle syncing like like Round does, uh, they handle some validation, they handle some optimistic updates, um, which is which is all an amazing developer experience because I just import that and use these APIs and it just handles the rest for me. Um, and for Temporal, we also have a fat client, and what we do is we replay anything, uh, any state transitions that have persisted. So part of the reliability story that we offer is that we event source everything. So if any part of your system goes down, all we do is we bring it back up again and we re- replay everything that's happened and we can continue where we left off. So that's a huge win for reliability, but it's only possible with a fat client like that.
1: I'm trying to wrap my mind around. If I were to begin working with Temporal, uh, maybe I've got an application that requires workflow. I'm working with TypeScript. Am I importing a library and then making a call to update the state with Temporal? You don't
0: actually have to make a call to update state. That's a bit too low level for what we do. We do that for mm-hmm. you. Uh, you you are importing a library. You are, there's a bundle library called Temporal IO that you import and that like exposes four packages for you to use to write clients, workers, activities, and workflows. And it depends on which part of the, the stack you're operating at, really. Uh, but essentially, for example, I'll, I'll just give you the, the, the key example that blows everyone away. Um, imagine in a workflow, if you were writing like a billing example, and you, you needed to charge a customer some money every 30 days. So what you do is you do while true, charge customer some amount, sleep 30 days. And then you just loop infinitely. And what that sleep does, it's behind the scenes. It's going to set that timer for you. It's going to make that gRPC that call to the server. It's going to set that timer for you. It's going to sleep. And so that that process dies. And it's, it's just going to be scheduled to wake back up again in 30 days. So you can run millions of these concurrently and on relatively simple hardware because these is all decoupled for you behind the scenes. But the developer experience, as you write it, is as though you're handling a single user who's from top to bottom with no with no re- regard to the failure in between because you have a completely reliable system under under the hood.
1: And yes, my mind is now blown. <laughs> that's great. What a great example.
0: So that's a, that's an example of like a definite timer. So like I set for a, a set amount of days, but also think about uh, condition based timers, which I really love as well. So um, it, that that checker example of like I need 17 things to, to be true for a drive for a gig economy worker to be onboarded to my system. Um, you can just kind of write that and that that makes your process sleep for an indefinite amount of time until all these conditions return true and i think that's a really fantastic way to program against against uh these things basically recutting your business logic from horizontal layers of like i need to set a cron job to check my database every few minutes and and i don't know how to test it or anything like that to a vertical instance where like i just Just think about a customer's journey from top to bottom, regardless of time, um, and I can handle uh, that much more responsibly and version that journey much more responsibly as well.
1: Mm. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with me and sharing your experience. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap?
0: I think it's underrated how much tech community and events is important to driving technology. I was, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of the podcast and I listened to your events podcast uh, a few episodes back and you just came back from your one of your dot .local events and we're mm-hmm. gearing up for, uh, we have a monthly meetup and we're gearing up for a conference next year. And it's just, I've just really seen uh, events galvanize the community in a way that I maybe didn't appreciate before. And that's something that is really getting a lot of excitement and, and energy around it, a project. And I think don't underestimate events. Um, try to organize your own and get people together. It's a fun. It's a fundamentally better way to learn together than alone. And uh, you make some friends along the way, which is always nice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we'll include links uh, to the things that you've mentioned there. Swix, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for for spending time with me. All right, thanks for having me, Michael. It was a blast. Be sure to check the show notes for links to the resources we mentioned. Visit learninpublic.org, the missing manual for junior to senior devs. Thanks to university.mongodb.com. Build your MongoDB skills and advance your career with courses and certification. Learn to build better, faster applications for free. University.mongodb.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.